This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. You are about to listen to one of the top three episodes I think we've ever done. We had on our buddy, Kurt Coburn, who's over at Shell Ventures now, leading their investment efforts into oil and gas tech and renewable tech and a variety of other things, uh, as you'll hear in the episode. But we go so much deeper than that. Kirk was absolutely instrumental in shaping up the startup scene here in Houston. And you know he, he founded Surge, uh, one of the first accelerators, uh, probably the first accelerator in energy period, and ran that for a few years with his own money. And his claim to fame is he's really invested in more energy deals than anybody. Um, and so we had a blast. We had such a good time and we've been, we've been texting back and forth with, with Kirk and we're like, we got to get you on again. So I know you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, uh, really quickly before we get into it, let's roll right into our TPH energy insight of the week. There's been a lot of chatter in the internet sphere across the world about really net neutrality is what really what we're talking about here. Deanna wrote this really good opinion piece in the TPH eTech uh, newsletter talking about, we saw, I'm not getting political here, but we saw the most powerful man in the world at the time, uh, Donald Trump, when he was president, get completely deplatformed by essentially every single social media platform you can imagine. Uh, and then we saw rival social media platform, Parler, get pulled from AWS. And so it begged the question of, Where's the line? Where is the line? Well, remember we were sitting in our office that day that everything was happening and Parler got pulled from Apple and from Google. Mm -hmm. And you remember me and you were sitting there like, can you imagine if AWS was to start pulling companies from their servers? And then Two that, hours later. And then that happened. That was like a doomsday. And like, I haven't been on Parler. I haven't used it. I don't give a damn about Parler. But the fact that but it's AW the precedent, yeah, the fact that AWS and Apple and Google and any other big tech company can collude to pull a service for a company that they don't approve of started really making me think about what were the implications for oil and gas. If you had companies in Silicon Valley that want oil and gas to go away, can they make it go away by providing or pulling away essential services? And this is what Deanna wrote about in the TPH newsletter, which was a fire piece, by the way. Uh, I'm really glad to see them talking about this because I think that there is this huge agency risk mm -hmm. involved with, you know, it, it, it's crazy what AWS has enabled for startups to build and democratize mm -hmm. the, the ability to have, you know, server capacity to build these SaaS platforms. It wasn't like that back in the day. You know, you had all of these upfront costs that you had to set up your servers and what it's done for the tech community has just been amazing. But also you become dependent on them and you mm -hmm. build on them and all of a sudden, you know, say that you're a company like Parler, you've built out on it and all of a sudden they pull the plug and you lose your company. Yep. So, you know, I don't think that we're anywhere close to this happening with AWS and oil and gas. I mean, but we, we did, we did see 2018, uh, there was also a link to it in the article of Amazon employees writing to Jeff Bezos yeah. and saying, hey, we need to pull the plug on anything that touches oil and gas yeah, whatsoever. Yeah, so it's already happened. There's internal movements at Amazon to make that happen. But then we also know firsthand that AWS is making huge strides and in energy. oil and yeah, gas. So we've been talking so, to the energy teams. So. Yeah. So they, you know, it, it becomes a thing. It, like, is it such a big internal movement that Bezos and them decide that, you know, they have to do something about it? But yeah, um, you know, we saw this the other day. We posted a video on YouTube um, that was a very balanced approach of how oil and gas is utilizing new technology to mitigate uh, methane, methane emissions, emissions and fight global warming. And we got hit with a fact checker on it. You know, it wasn't like a bad fact checker, like, oh, this yeah. is false information, but it was like, oh, 
this is global warming. Here's a source to learn more, which is also funny because they sort, they link to Wikipedia, which I thought was kind of goofy, but you're already seeing that. Like if there's any discussion around the topic of global warming or oil and gas, it's become a political conversation. And then if you look and, at a lot of the, so not to cut you off, but the, the comments that we got on the video, anybody who watched it from the industry loved it, said it was straight line. It wasn't political. It was just fact-based, but we had a lot of people finding that video. And I just thought of this, what about the algorithm? Who is the video being placed in front of? Because we get a lot of a negative thing saying, this isn't factual. And you can obviously tell that they are complete radicals on yeah. the other end of the spectrum. And it was all factual. I mean, there was yeah. no opinion on there. It was all factual. 100% factual. <laughs> We're actually citing other agencies that are not oil and gas agencies yeah. uh, and all that data. So. I think it's it's definitely a risk. I don't think we're necessarily there yet, but it's already been attempted. Could oil and gas, not just sites, but like data essentially be deplatformed, yeah. you know? And I think it's it's something that we, we're, we're going to have to struggle with and probably something we're going to have to overcome. Yeah. Um, it, it's absolutely ridiculous that we're even talking about this, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but that's the world that we live in. So we'll see what happens. The more you know. So go check out uh, TPH's eTech newsletter. Go sign up for that. Check out ours as well, The Roundup. It's the world's greatest newsletter. Um, and let's get right into the episode. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. We're joined with the infamous, the one, the only, the Kurt Coburn. The dangerous. The OG. The OG. <laughs> you really are like, there's only a few people who have that title, and I feel like you are probably... More than most. So I think it's like you probably, I think Kamal Farid, I would consider him an OG. Yeah. Because he's been around. He obviously started Merrick back in the 80s. But you. Does that stand for Overgold? <laughs> Original gangster. Original gangster, <laughs> but Overgold is, you know, that works too. Uh, Sweet. You know, I think you've probably, I think through the work that you did with Surge and now with Shell and everything you've done in between, is it fair to say that you've probably invested in more energy tech startups than anybody? I mean, I'm over 60 and counting. So that's, crazy. that's a lot. Who yeah. else has more deals? Now I have, I probably haven't done the highest quantity or in terms of the amount of money I've spent, but yeah. I spent a lot of my own personal money. So it, it is painful. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't so wait to painful. dive into that. Just the look on your no face. Doubt. You're like, Oh yeah, <laughs> this is getting heated up. So too. yeah. Why don't you tell us about like, Let's talk about what Surge was first. I mean, I don't even know where to start unpacking this. Actually, let's talk about where you're at now. Yeah, yeah right you're now, at Shell. you're at yeah. Shell Ventures. What do you do at Shell? So currently I have two jobs at Shell. One is my day job. My day job is I'm one of the leaders at Shell Ventures, which is the global corporate venture capital arm of the company. And I invest in deals, you know, entrepreneurs that are inspiring, that are solving the world's problems um, that have to do with energy. So it's awesome. Yeah. My second gig is I'm currently focused on spinning out a company. Um, and, and that's, I'm sort of spending a lot of time on, we do spin outs too. So we look at ideas and we're like, Hey, we have an idea for a company and let's go spin this company out. So I spent a lot of time on, on that as well. So yeah. my, my day job is right now, Shell Ventures. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. I'm sure you stay busy. <laughs> my golf game is not helping. Um, it's, it's not, you know, I'm not able to make my golf game any better because of my day job, but yeah. I'm going to change that. Yeah. Nor my surfing. So, yeah. but that's also it's really hard to, to do surfing <laughs> here in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> no, Surfside, man, last Sunday was some rolling, good rolling laughs, I've been told. I didn't really? go down because I was busy, but. Uh, you know, those of us that surf in this area all look at the surf report and when there's something there, we'll go down. Storm, Never usually it's storm related, before. but. Yeah. Surfing is way <laughs> harder. Okay. So I've surfed. I will not ever call myself a surfer because I'm terrible at it. I've attempted it. So I lived in California four years when I was a station at Camp Hamilton. Gives you credibility. Yeah. So I was there at Oceanside and all along the, the beach towns and we would go surfing and by we go surfing, I mean, I would like sit there and swim out and swim out and swim out for like hours <laughs> and attempt to like ride a wave. And I think I rode one ever, like in the entire <laughs> four years that I was, I was just terrible at it. It's exhausting. Let me tell you something. It's like, I mean, it's, it's you're a lot just, of work. It's a lot of work. You're fighting the waves. Waves are a lot stronger than you. Where did you learn so, to surf? I grew up uh, with a house in Galveston. Okay. And so I surfed here and it's terrible. Yeah. Um, and then I took surf trips, you know, in college. 
I took a few surf trips and then right after college, I was working at Dell in the nineties, which you usually don't take vacation during that time. Cause it was like 94 to 99. It's like five stock splits, <laughs> Delionaire, you know, many of us, including myself made a lot of money on the stock. So we were Delionaires yeah. by just being <laughs> in the right place at the right time. But I was still in my twenties and I was like, screw work. I want to play and live life. So I was, even though I'm a Gen Xer, I had a little millennial in me. Yeah. And so I took a three-week surf trip. The first one, I did it multiple times with buddies, and we go down to Mexico. So that's when I started really getting like, okay, I'm a surfer. But now I spend my summers up in the Northeast in Nantucket on an island, um, which has great surf. So, um, and, and when, and almost every day there's something, if it's some days are flat, but I surf there all summer. So that is a passion of mine. Kirk's hanging out with Dave Portnoy up in Nantucket. That's what's yeah, going on. You know, on it's funny. I, I do have a photo and I'll, 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 I don't like going up to famous people having, you know, <laughs> I've been around a lot of famous people because of my previous jobs, yeah. but I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. However, Portnoy, you know, to my, uh, to my kids, Portnoy's a legend. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, uh, he was in at this one sort of local brewery and distillery near my house in Nantucket. I was like, there's Portnoy. And this whole, um, our whole family and friends, we all had a bet, like the first person to run in and get a selfie with Port <laughs> Portnoy, there's going to be a large cash prize. And so I see him and, and my buddy who I roll with still went to high school here in Houston together, he's, uh, has no fear. Like he has no fear to do anything anywhere, anytime. In fact, he played golf with Alice Cooper when he was <laughs> last, I don't know when Alice Cooper played, it was a couple of years ago, but he played with Alice Cooper golf the next day after a concert barefoot. <laughs> so this guy's is, is the most daring guy I know. He wouldn't go up to Portnoy, but I was like, I'm doing it. I was like, Hey, Portnoy, Kirk Coburn, <laughs> uh, you know, we've got a large cash bet on the line for the first person to run into you in selfie. I was like, can we take a picture? And he's like, yeah, man, what's up? <laughs> so he's like, cut me in on that. So, uh, <laughs> I do have a selfie with the Portnoy and so you know, funny. I felt kind of weird, but, but then, you know, you got to do it. You need to include that on the video. I'll send it. <laughs> That's so funny, man. It's uh, reminds me of that time. Like there's never like a non-awkward way to approach a celebrity for that. Like I don't get, I've never been starstruck by anyone, but it's like that time at Cheesecake Factory, Mike Bibby came in. I was just like, Hey dude, are you Mike Bibby? He's like, yeah. I was like, all right, cool. You just own it. You just own yeah. it. Yeah. I was in, um, I was in Austin and there's a kind of a Texas singer guy named Jack Ingram who, yeah. who, and his, his daughter went to the same, was in the same class as my daughter. And, and I'm in line at Starbucks and I look at him. I was like, Jack. And he's looking at me like, who are you? I was like, Jack Ingram. And I was like, oh, Jack Ingram. I was like, <laughs> I know you, but I don't know you. Yeah. I was like, sorry. <laughs> I, you, know, you see somebody and you're like, oh, I know you. You're so familiar. So I was like, Jack, what's up? <laughs> and then I realized like, you don't know me. And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, I don't know you. I was like, oh, forget it. <laughs> yeah, How surprised are you? You've been like, oh, Kirk. <laughs> I know, no doubt. You, know, you should know me. <laughs> so let's, uh, you know, now that we've kind of established what you're doing with Shell, and I, I want to dive into that a little bit too. You we'll know, get what there. kind of companies you guys are um, funding through uh, Shell Ventures. But let's talk about kind of the origin story and Surge. You know, I've... Yeah, like what? Yeah, what led up to the founding of of Surge really in the first place? Like, when do you guys found that? All yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I think the 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 long story, and we'll try to make this you know poignant, which I'm not very poignant sometimes, is that I'm a pretty average entrepreneur, and I can start companies successfully. I can get them off and running. I've never started a unicorn, so I, you know I don't have the billion dollars under my belt, but I've started multi multi million dollar startups. Mm -hmm. I'm like I can do it; it's easy. But I'm not sure I'm the guy to create the next Tesla. You mm -hmm. know, I haven't proven it. And and what I've learned about my first startup is after you sell that first startup, you start really getting nervous about can I do it again? And if you don't make sort of the billion dollars on your first deal, no matter how much you made, and I we made good money, a good return. It wasn't enough for me to feel like, 
you know, I'm on the cover of Forbes magazine. So you start thinking about startup number two. What was that start, first company real quick? It was called the PGA Tour Network on Sirius XM. Okay. And then we created a whole bunch of channels on satellite radio that were sports that, yeah. you know, multiple sports. Mm-hmm. It was successful. But the thing that you think about is how do I do it again? Now, I yeah. started two companies at the same time. So, but anyway, after those two companies, I was thinking, can I do it again? And I, I realized that I can do it again. The thing was, is that after you start companies, it takes a lot of effort and energy. And so what you start thinking about is I have enough money where I can live happily, but that's not the purpose of life. Mm-hmm. And starting a company takes a lot of energy. And the energy is you better be doing something that you really care about. Otherwise, you know, you're going to look up and, you know, your, your, your startup could be 10 years old and you're tired. And so after my, you know, fifth startup, I was like, I've got to do something that I really care about. So I, I thought about, you know, my, my grandfather ran the West Texas oil fields in World War II. And my father started a successful tech company that had big oil and gas um, companies as clients. Mm-hmm. And he sold that to a private equity shop in, um, in the 90s. And I was like, man, I, I've been around energy my whole life. I'm a, what I would call myself, which makes most people completely um, sort of cross-eyed is I'm a libertarian environmentalist. I'm a libertarian in the sense of economics should rule the planet. Like if, mm-hmm. and, 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 and shouldn't there, I don't want a whole lot of intervention by people because usually bad things happen when you intervene. Yeah. At the same time, I love outside. I love the outside. I'm like, of course, energy is sort of at the intersection of, you know, per, trying to do what's in the best interest of all of us. Cause we all need energy to survive, but there's also this clean element that, you know, has this impetus to how do we make, keep the earth as clean as possible, but do it in a way that embraces the energy companies that already know the business. Because when you think about people that I've grew up with that are in oil Mm -hmm. and gas, everyone I know loves the planet too. I mean, imagine that. So I thought, Hey, let's go figure out how to be involved in energy. And I knew it was over my head. I was like, this is too hard for me. It's way above my pay grade, but I'm going to try it anyway. So that was the idea of let's do something in energy. And and so the only way that I thought I could really create any credibility is to put my own money into it. So I was like, let's start an accelerator because Y Combinator was off, was starting and, and Techstars was starting and they're both just a year or year, two years old. I was yeah. like, great idea. What a great thing to do. But if we're going to do it, Houston only has one thing it can compete against against anyone else in the world. It's its core competency is is energy. Yeah. So let's start an energy focus accelerator and go from there. What year was this? This was in 2010 was when the idea started, but we started our first class in 2011. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy now. Like I talked to the director over at TechStars just a couple of days ago over their climate initiative and you know, now they have 200 portfolio companies that are climate tech and focus on energy solutions. So just the fact that you were focused on that, you know, 2010, 2011, I mean, you were a decade before. Yeah, way these before. other groups. <laughs> and we tried to get tech stars, you know, after surge in 2015 when I was like, man, it's not working. And and for, for accelerators, there's only two models that I've seen, or three models that really work on accelerators. One is you're Y Combinator and you have huge home runs because mm-hmm. when you have home runs, you can pay for your program. Yeah. Well, well, you know, what Y Combinator has is they have the, the Silicon Valley wired. Yeah. No one else can really do that. So, yeah. so that's one model. The and they second, let in, they let in like less than, it's a lower percentage than people who even get into Harvard from the number of people who right. actually apply to Y Combinator. So now they have that, that brand name, which I think in the industry is, depending on who you talk to is either a really, really great thing. And you're, you're a believer in the Y Combinator camp. And then there's the other side that's like, well, like, like Jason Calcana says, you have to like wash the Y Combinator off of some of his portfolio companies and maybe some of the hubris that comes with it. And so I don't really know. I haven't really been involved. I did apply to Y Combinator with a startup like a billion years ago. 
didn't get accepted, obviously. So kind of a little, little bit of a <laughs> little bit of a chip on my shoulder, but it probably wasn't that good of an idea. At the but first yeah, place. but you look at it. I mean, like I saw a thing the other day about Y Combinator, just their um, their piece of Airbnb. I mean, just the return off of that. Yeah, pays for the entire program. exactly. <laughs> I mean, what a great system. We didn't yeah. have that system. Yeah. The second model is Techstars, which I, I think what they have realized is, and what I realized is I, I had a million dollar budget annually for for Surge and I'm paying the bills. I'm paying people, I'm paying everyone to be there. Mm -hmm. Now the investors pay for some of that and then we went and got sponsorships, but the business model's flawed if you're not return, getting cash from from exits, which we weren't, or you're getting cash from sponsors. And and so the, the model, what Techstars figured out is we're gonna go get corporates to do these three-year commitments to fund the program. Yep. And then all the equity is upside for Techstars. Mm -hmm. And then Techstars built a large fund on top of that that could, picks the winners out of their programs, which is great, great model. Yeah. But they're doing a lot of corporate sales and they're good at it. And they've shown that they can do it and they can sustain it. Yeah. The third model is, you know, government grants or, you know, local communities supporting that, which I think is hard. Yeah. So I was for, Surge was for profit. And I was like, we don't have the exits. Now it's trending in the right direction and we're globally known, which I'm like, great. I'd rather be globally unknown and wealthy as, as <laughs> crap. Versus the, the, you know, the most popular kid that's poor. And, yeah. and, and so I had to make a hard decision. It's like, this is five years of my life, a lot of my own, a lot of my own money. And it's not, it's not working. Yeah. And so you have to be able to say, it's not going to work. Yeah. And, and that's hard. No one else wanted to say it. I was like, I'm willing to say it and I'm willing to take the responsibility so I wrote a letter, you know, that letter I remember that, reading I, that I get too many people ask me about. I was like, I wrote the letter to say, hey, it's no one's fault but mine. It didn't work. And I'm, as the leader of this thing, I've got to be able to say it. Someone's got to say it. Yeah. Why That's such you, an important lesson, though, is yeah. you always hear this mantra. is like, never quit, never quit, never quit. But sometimes you have to know when the time to quit is right. Yep. You know, you're five years invested in it, all the capital that you've put up. And if it's not working... If you don't say, hey, it's not working, who's going to say that and, and make that decision? And so, I mean, do you, like, how do you communicate that to other founders? Like, I've had plenty of businesses that have failed before Digital Wildcatters, and it's like, hey, I'm not going to keep spinning my wheels here. I, you know, how do you ever know that time is right to move on to the next thing, or do you? I mean, great question, because sometimes companies are are too early to fail, because they haven't hit it yet. And mm -hmm. that's something that I think is, you've got to bet on good CEOs that have self-insight. Yeah, I mean, one of my best companies, Chief Outsiders, great idea, it's working really well. Um, but I realized when I started, I was like, this was a my idea. I came up with all the curriculum. I brought in somebody that had credibility as a real chief marketing officer from a big company, Art Saxby, who still runs it. But I realized like this thing is working and it's awesome. And I actually landed the, some of the first key customers and was their outsourced CMO. But I was a terrible CMO. And I was like, I love this idea, but I don't want to be here. It's not for me. So I had a hard conversation with my co-founder, Art, and said, man, this is a great idea, but it's not for me. So I'm going to leave and I'm going to put someone in my place that it's going to be great. And now the business took off after I left, even went even faster in mm -hmm. growth and ramp. I'm like, I had to make that hard call. Now everyone at the time was like, this is going to kill the company. It's horrible. But I was like, I know it's not going to be horrible because I'm, I've lost passion and I'm really not that good at it. Yeah. The idea was great. I got off the ground, boom. Um, and so I think I look for CEOs that get to have self insight to be able to make the hard call when no one else wants to. Absolutely. What do you, why do you think that you guys weren't able, like what are, what are some of the, the reasons that you feel like surgeon work? I know you mentioned that you weren't able to get the exits. I mean, let's like dive into that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we look, I, I, I tried to get, um, rig up into the program and they were like, you're crazy. You know, we have, you know, 
big money already. So they're not going to give us 8% equity for $30,000 cash. But there weren't any, it was too early. There mm -hmm. weren't companies. How many, how many energy tech companies have made it? I mean, I can count a few and those yeah. have yet to cash out. Yeah. yeah. And so there's aren't any. And so 2010, now it's 2021, 11 or so it's been at least 10 years and venture capital funds are 10 years old. You have to extend it. We, you know, every one of surge one, two, three, and four surge one is already up. Yeah. Um, we have to either extend it with our investors or we have to shut it down, but we're not going to shut it down because we have outstanding portfolio companies that still have value. Yeah. So I think what I learned in the fund business is that you have to return cash. And so this is going to be a great debate in venture capital, but I'm an inner, I'm a, again, I'm not a venture capital guy. I'm about money. Yeah. And, and one of the things I've learned, if you look at Utemco, used to, University of Texas Investment Management Company, which runs, manages UT's um, port, uh, funds. Utemco is one of the biggest uh, institutional investors in Texas. And Utemco reported, and I have some of their data, but they don't report anymore, but they report out on their like best performing uh, funds that they've invested in. Well, SCF Partners here in Houston was their best performing fund on a cash on cash return basis. They've returned more cash than anyone else. It's amazing. And then they have another fund, Union Square Ventures, that has the best internal rate of return. So they have huge portfolio companies, but they haven't returned any cash. Mm -hmm. I'm like, at the end of the day, as an investor, you want cash. Yeah. So surge wasn't returning cash at the at the at the rate that I thought would keep investors continuing to invest, mm -hmm. and I think that is the hard part. And when I saw I'm five years into this and I'm not returning cash yet, I don't even have some early wins yet. I just saw it was going to be too long, and and that I'd rather just say, hey, we can't continue to do this without realizations. Yeah. But I mean, that's a, a broad problem too. 60% of VCs fail to return cash to LPs. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not just something that was specific to surge. I mean, that's an industry-wide problem. Um, and then also, you know, you talk about the timing aspect. I was just thinking about this as well, because the only reason digital wildcatters exist is because, you know, we saw this wave of digital tech coming in the space and we built a community around that. But I mean, that started in 2017. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we were starting off like, you know, oil and gas needs to, you know, change their mindset, evolve or die. They need to adopt technology. And so I look at you starting surge in 2011 and I just can imagine that there's just so much resistance in the industry at that time. And you didn't have the tech players and the exits or, you know, just the capital. So even you, you look at it now and I mean, you brought it up, like, where's, where's the big exits? And I have VCs outside VCs that come to us all the time and they're like, yeah, you know, we're really interested in energy tech, but you know, especially oil and gas, but can you point to some exits and it's just really hard. I you mean, know, you count to, them on a hand. One up until this point, it's been mostly, I mean, you look at Inveris has probably made the most acquisitions. Last one being Q engineering, January, 2020. Um, but then they haven't made any acquisitions since then. So who else is acquiring energy tech companies in the space? Yeah. I mean, unless it's private equity Good. coming in. No, that's the, that's the challenge. That's why when I went to Shell, um, you know, you have all this. The, so let me step back before I make that point. Let me step back. The thesis that we had in 2010 that's still important is that you had why Houston and, and what, what's happening. You have digitalization in general, have cloud computing completely disrupting how we think about we and and on because of cloud, you have some AI and some some cool technology that can help you make decisions. You have mobility, so you have mobile phones. So now you can you know do amazing mm -hmm. things like collect data in the field on on a phone versus on paper. There's a lot of you know there's some good companies out there actually. Yeah, um, but we also bet on the generational crew change so that 
you know, baby boomers retiring and millennials are going to, and Gen X were sort of crushed in the middle and there's not a lot of us and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we're not the big generation, but millennials are going to get promoted quickly. Mm-hmm. Now I was a Dell in the nineties and I was, you know, Gen Xer and I got promoted quickly. A lot of us did because we were booming like crazy. The tech industry promoted quickly, Yeah, but energy doesn't. And so we also said that, wow, the shale unconventional business is really interesting because it brought all the superpowers to Houston again. So, you, you know, Aramco to, to, you know, at the time was Statoil, but Equinor all had offices here. And it's like, this is the ground zero for everything energy. What, what we got wrong was that the generational crew change didn't happen. The millennials didn't get promoted like we thought they were. Like baby boomers hold on to their jobs. And even when they retire, what does energy business do? They hire another baby boomer yeah, or a Gen Xer. Yeah. And when you think about digitalization, of course, the, the industry is going to, you know, be massively um, save a lot of costs a lot of energy by putting things in more tech fashion versus manual. But here's the problem. Almost every large company has hired a baby boomer to lead the tech digitization innovation. Yep. And when baby boomers that did not grow up in tech, what do they do? They go, well, Microsoft and no one ever got fired from hiring IBM. So that's what they do. Mm-hmm. They make big decisions on massive deals. So like you look at the Schlumberger announcements, the big announcements by a lot of us, and we're saying, hey, we just hired the oldest tech company known <laughs> to man as our big tech provider. We're, we're resistant about it. So part of that is that we got the crew change wrong because, and now you're putting people making tech decisions that are sort of making the safe decisions. We totally got it wrong. You're fucking preach, man. This is like, good. Like this, this is, is good. good. No, I'm it's, saying it's because that's my money. I'm looking at going. Damn it! I'm. I. This is where we totally missed. I guess this episode and every other episode for the next six months is going to be brought to you by Datagration. So we're super proud to partner with these guys. You know, we interview a lot of startups. We have them on the show. We talk about them. Lots of technologies being implemented. You know, across the across the sector. But here's the problem is that once you have more and more startups, you have more and more data and operators having to maintain, operators having to maintain dozens of apps and data sources to manage their operations. The problem is that none of these systems or data sources are connected or even automated. Engineers have to manually configure the workflows and spend most of their time preparing for data versus analyzing it and actually taking action. This approach isn't scalable and becomes very expensive to implement and maintain. Companies like Datagration have created a platform that eliminates these issues. With new technology coming to the market weekly, organization with new technology coming to the market weekly, organizations need the speed and flexibility to adapt, especially in these times. The Petrovisor platform connects people, systems, and data with complete visibility to the technical and economic recommendations. Petrovisor delivers core capabilities that enable EMPs to quickly, efficiently automate petrotechnical workflows and run them at scale. So you can combine your field, reservoir, and accounting data into advanced economics-based assessments. Whether you're finance teams, developers, or petroleum engineers, it can accelerate efforts that focus on business challenges, such as well-performance optimization, such as capital development or ESG optimization. We also know that people spend a considerable amount of time coordinating email, sending, forwarding, receiving. We hate email, we use Slack usually. But with the Petrovisor platform, this is also eliminated. Petrovisor can be integrated with collaboration tools like Microsoft Teams or deliver data outputs and visualization tools like Spotfire and Tableau, which I know a lot of UNPs are currently using. By doing this, companies can improve cross-domain workflows, automate business processes, and mitigate risk all on a single open collaborative platform that is easy to set up, maintain, and expand. Go check out the link in the show notes. Go to datagration.com. Check these guys out. I think they're going to do some really big things, and thanks for partnering with us. Well, that's, I was actually, so a VC up in New York City is interested in investing in us. And they're like, hey, can you write us a, a synopsis of the oil and gas industry? And I talked about the gr- great crew change, but it's funny because I was going back and I was looking, and I was like, man, there's articles eight years ago yeah. talking about the great crew change and Absolutely. just how long that got drug out. And still going. Still going. Um, and still it, going. And it absolutely kills tech initiatives. 
But I thought about like when we think about the unconventional space, which has completely changed the business. But what, and this is where I got in trouble with community leaders early on at Surge because I was sort of the bad guy. The, a lot of the young people in Houston were totally behind Surge, but some of the older, you know, politician, yeah, tech people really didn't like Surge. HTC, HTC. <laughs> <laughs> okay. they hated us. And I debated, like I had some panel I was on, I debated a guy, he remains nameless, about how good is the unconventional space? I said, I'm just going to be honest. I don't know anything about really how to frack or yeah. horizontal drill, but I do know this. What, 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 what innovation usually does is reduces the cost to operate. And unconventional increases the cost to operate. Now, there's more reserves open, but the challenge is it's more expensive. So I'm like, I don't get it. So why am I going to invest into a startup that their business is supporting the unconventional space when the unconventional business is unprofitable? So yeah. that in and of its nature says that any tech company supporting that is, is not going to work. Yeah. So I didn't make any investments there. At Surge, I did because I wanted to, I was learning. Mm-hmm. But at Shell, I haven't because I'm like, I don't believe that they're, they're, they're building a business on a flawed business model. Yeah. And we're seeing that shake out. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yep. Yeah. This, (laughs) I'm really glad we're getting to have this podcast and this conversation because, you know, like I've talked to Gaurav over at Chai One and we talked about the evolution of building the the tech community in Houston. And it starts with Surge and what they do is start Houston. And him and I were talking about how it's been this evolution. And now, you know, what we have at Digital Wildcatters, we've built a community, but we did it through digital content. And we go through the same things. I mean, it's like, you know, how you had HTC. It's like we have people that um, are very resistant against us. And they're usually 65 year old completions consultants. Yeah, like we've, yeah, we've actually like made it. Yeah, we've made a meme that are looking for jobs. We've made a meme. Troll calling on Like we've made a meme out of them. And consultants are, I mean, let's just be, be honest. And at Surge, I was like, if you're a consultant, if you try to sell to any of these companies, you're out. Yeah. I don't like the consultants Like, get out. Yeah. Yeah. And so just seeing the evolution of where you guys started, where the ecosystem's at today, what's happening. And it's just crazy that, you know, Houston wants to be this tech, this energy tech hub. And we're still having the same conversations a decade later, you know, from what you guys faced in the early days. And so. And that's not just energy. That's like Houston as a whole. The entire tech scene here is still very, very fragmented. Yeah. And some of the biggest initiatives, without really calling anybody out, that are happening in the city, it's kind of the same thing that you said with HTC. It's very quasi-political, a lot of hands in this pot. Very it's bureaucratic. very much a real estate play, and it's not a tech play. It's, it's not, not a tech play. I mean, look at like, and I again, I've been hot and cold on Austin and I, we can go to Austin if we, if we want to on the podcast about my beliefs since I did live there for 20 years, <laughs> but Josh bear is the mayor of Austin. He's an entrepreneur, a techie. He's awesome. Yeah. Who's, who's the, who's that in, in Houston? In fact, everyone that's tried to be that in Houston has been sort of thrown there. We throw rocks at those people, yeah. including myself. Yeah. It's like the, the people that sort of run the Houston tech ecosystem are bureaucrats. And yeah. that's, I, I, there's a place for everyone, but, but I've told them and they don't like the answer. I'm like, that's the problem. You're trying to orchestrate something that needs to be organic. Yeah. And you're trying to hold back people that are trying to build things organically. Yeah. Well, the, that will make it a better ecosystem. The problem is, is you have people running initiatives that have never built shit themselves. That's true. Like they haven't built companies. And if you read, that's you know, the single biggest if you read problem. Bradfeld's book, Startup Communities, uh, you know, Bradfeld is one of the founders of Techstars, which we've talked about. He talks about this is that you'll have a bunch of corporations come in and they try to set up the community and it never works because it has to be led by founders. The community has to be led by founders because they know what the, that they know what other founders yep. need. They know what resources. They and need. in they energy, that- we don't have a ton of successful founders. We don't. I mean, that's yeah. That's one of the issues, and we need to recruit them back. You know. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's another thing that me and Girl were talking about. It was 
like you've never had these liquidity waterfalls that Silicon Valley has where, you know, just like you were talking about a bunch of you guys over at Dell made a bunch of money and then you're reinvesting that into startups, you're reinvesting wisdom and experience. And it's just something that we've lacked here in Houston. And I think that it's a little bit better now because now we have content in the internet and you get access to different things, but it's still, um, it's just, it always boggles my mind to see that we have, so much talent here and so many resources and we still struggle to stand up an ecosystem. And obviously that's a main objective of digital wildcatters is to build this tech community, but it's just, um, you know, it's just wild to hear from the man himself, the things that you guys dealt with a decade ago, over a decade ago. Amen, still, man. The past continues to repeat itself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad someone else has taken on the, uh, the taking on the burden. <laughs> So how did you get over at Shell? Because I one thing I find really interesting is like, you know, I'm sitting here uh, as I'm sitting here bashing, you know, corporations trying to stand up the, the ecosystem. Shell's got a guy like you that gets it and you understand it. You've built things. How did you land over there? And I mean, Shell was an investor in two of the surge funds and I like the Shell team. I mean, Shell's got the, the one thing that you find in big companies is you have some of the smartest people that have a low risk tolerance, so they're not going to be entrepreneurs, but you have really, really smart people. Mm -hmm. And, and by the way, you know, when you go more senior at Shell and other big companies, what you'll, you know, what I've told Shell is, listen, as an entrepreneur, I've tried to build Shell. I wanted to build something as big as Shell, but I haven't been able to do it. So yeah. it's hard to bash a company that has a actually very unique culture that, is over hundred years old. Like you, it's really hard to do that. Yeah. So it's pretty impressive when you think about companies like Shell. Like they're impressive. They've done something well, and they and what what they can't afford to do is bring in people like me that may destroy the company. So you you have to be able to operate. And, and within Shell, they they knew that I had a great network and was looking for someone to lead the team. So it was a natural fit. I think the question that Shell had was, is he going to survive? Yeah. And and some days, like today, I'm going to say, I don't know if I'm going to survive because, you know, there, there's corporate stuff yeah. that I just don't think is worth spending time on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then there's, you know, I, I think to be successful in a big company, you have to have, or, or, or in roles like mine, is you have to be believable and trusted by the corporates, the suits, which I think I have the ability to do that. Yeah. But you have to push push against them hard enough to convince them to change a little bit. And and I've I've been successful doing that, you know, but I again I don't think that I'm gonna be doing this forever. I, yeah. I think it's and and what what did Shell bring to me? Shell brought to me knowledge of the industry. Like at, at Surge, I could only listen to entrepreneurs and consultants and experts talk so much. But now that I'm inside the belly of the beast, I can tell you what the real problems are. We're in the middle of an energy transition, which is exciting no matter where you stand on, on it. Mm -hmm. It's super cool. And, and Shell is progressive towards energy transition, which for me as someone that loves innovation, loves the outside, and, and believes that it's the energy oil and gas companies that are going to lead the transition. It's a great place to be. Yeah. So for me, it's been an incredible experience and I meet, I've met a lot of great people. Yeah. I just had a, a Twitter thread go viral yesterday talking about the energy transition and talking about it from both sides. Um, you know, you have a, a lot of people within oil and gas that are climate deniers and you have people on the other side that are just idealist and, you know, there's middle ground and it's possible to say, hey, I think that the oil and gas industry plays a vital role in the energy transition as, you know, evidenced by Shell and all of these companies. I mean, really putting a ton of capital into new technology and, and new startups. And so for me, I wrote a great blog on this and, did you? and I, I do talk a lot about Milton Friedman's original 1970s article about this. And, and it actually, at the time it was about, um, it was about pollution versus the environment, mm -hmm. but same, it's almost like if you go read my blog, 
It's incredible. I trust me. Everyone <laughs> listening, it's incredible. Send, send, us, the best send, plug. send us the link. We'll put it <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> um, but if you actually and then click on the Milton Friedman link, you'll you'll almost think that you're in modern day, but it was written in the 70s. Yeah. So almost 50 years ago. The same thing happens. Economics will ultimately drive what happens. Yeah. And you need government. So, you know, what I tell everyone is like you need three actors to all participate for anything to change. You need society. So one of the things we know about society is we everyone says they want a clean environment, but how many will pay extra for recycling or pay extra for that water bottle that's made from recycled waste? Yeah. Very few. We're, we actually know is like most people won't do it. Yeah. Yep. Secondly, you need businesses to be there to do it, but businesses won't do it unless it economically makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because as I, my blog is awesome. <laughs> what, what Milton Friedman will write is ultimately if you don't satisfy your shareholder and I'll call total bullshit on the, the, the business round table and all these people that say that it's all stakeholders that matter. I'm like, that is bullshit. The, sh st the shareholder is the number one stakeholder. It will always be. Now, if you treat your customers shitty, they're going to leave you. Yeah. If you treat your suppliers shitty, they're going to figure out how to screw you. You have to treat everyone well. Yeah. But your shareholder is the one, and this is why, for example, big companies, I'm not going to mention names, in the energy space have a very limited window because shareholders are saying, look, I don't believe you oil and gas company are going to lead the energy transition because I'm already invested in Tesla. Yeah. So they have activist investors on both sides saying, on one side, don't spend too much money on energy transition because we'll leave and you cannot, as a CEO of a publicly traded company, have your capital base leave because you'll get fired. Yeah. But if you don't spend any money, <laughs> if you don't spend any money on energy transition, which they just recently, then then the shareholders are going to active, be active against you saying you're not doing enough. Yeah. So why are these budgets, almost every major energy company sort of similar in their energy transition is because shareholders are holding them accountable. Yeah. And Milton Friedman does write about this and like CEOs get fired all the time for not spending capital wisely. Now, there, unfortunately, there's no formula. So, you know, when the gap was, you know, using child labor, the CEO got fired. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you have to know how to manage your shareholders, but your shareholders are the ones that can hire and fire you. And as yeah. CEO, that's how it works. Yeah. I mean, if you look Period. at Exxon, you know, one engine essentially <laughs> trying to start a proxy war and get board seats and put in an ESG initiative. So those are the things that you have to deal with, especially in today's day and age when with ESG. But when we saw Toby take over EQT, yeah, their proxy battle. Yeah. So, so shareholders definitely drive the initiative. 100%. It's absolutely the case. And and, and uh, it's not a bad thing, but that's the only way to keep score. Yeah. So from a technological perspective, you know, you kind of dove into this, how you weren't really bullish on tech companies that were servicing unconventional um, oil and gas companies because you didn't believe that the fundamental model of shale was viable and fair criticism been on the record saying that for years now um what technologies are you bullish on in energy tech and what are you guys investing in through shell so yeah great um we're, we're doing investing across the entire energy spectrum i mean i we're probably similar to other venture cvcs corporate venture venture capital firms in terms of the energy transition has got everyone's attention yeah um, can we make existing operations more sustainable, uh, lower our carbon footprint, and increase production? Absolutely. And so we can always continue to look at oil and gas opportunities. Yeah. You know, my, I have an investment in Blueware, which is focused on what most people think exploration. But I'm like, oil and gas is not going away, number one. And People are reducing their exploration budgets, but it's much cheaper to find oil than it is to buy existing reserves mm -hmm. if you can, if you're good at it. Yeah. So exploration, I'm like, well, everyone's going away from exploration. I think it's a great bet because exploration, if you can use digital technologies to find reserves, 
bam, that's a huge, huge uh, increase yeah. in your value of your company. So I make bets in exploration because I believe that technology, digital technology is completely changing the game there. Yeah, um, that is a good point. It's kind of like, you know, you go into this manufacturing mindset of shale and then everyone just kind of, you know, exploration is just kind of bastardized and you don't take all these new technologies and apply it to that process. I'm sure there's a ton of opportunity. There. One of the best stories in energy tech ever was that one company that we talked about. I can't remember the name of it, but it was like early 2000s. The guy from who worked at NASA's JPL and he got investment from uh, the Newfield Energy CEO and a bunch of other people. Are you talking raised, about the guy with the, the bought the jets? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he yeah. raised like 450 million in multi-billion dollar valuation, no oil and gas experience, and he bought these these decommissioned Russian jets, and was essentially saying that he was going to fly over basins and with some kind of like technology be able to just detect the reservoirs, right? And turns out the whole thing was just like just a scam. It was a th- Theranos <laughs> essentially. So. Yeah, but now we do have the technology to apply. And I just think that it's interesting that everyone's kind of turned their back on just conventional exploration. But if you apply some technology, I'm sure there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there to extract value. Yeah, I mean, data, you know, again, we've said this a million times, but I think in 2011, one of my companies coined data is the new oil. Yeah, 2011, by the way. Now I hear it, I read it now. I'm like, well, that's been, we've said that, said for, that for, for a decade now. <laughs> I love tra- the trading side of energy. Mm-hmm. And so both in power and, and gas. And I think trading, there's so much happening in trading and, and the, the convergence of retail and, 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 and wholesale trading yeah. is a big space that I, I really like. Um, Man, we could go. There's a lot of areas. I do, what I don't love is mobility in terms of, you know, the whole the whole. I, even though I'm, my biggest investment is mobility investment, but it's energy storage systems for maritime space. Okay. But I don't. I, I'm not sure. You know, mobility. I mean, like the whole transportation sector, and and you know, betting on what's going to be the right. EV solution. Mm-hmm. I think EV is more of a power business anyway, like electric vehicles, because you need to get those need to be charged and EV charging platforms are really power. Mm-hmm. So I, I see that as more power. I like power, but I think mobility, there's a lot of noise and hype around mobility. Now, Elon Musk, you know, at the time I checked it last week, you know, Tesla was almost three times more valuable on on an enterprise level than shell itself yeah so you know there's that could be hype but if this, i'm the i love elon i'm like yeah. man that guy like <laughs> i love I, elon too i take it well someone tweeted that uh even if chevron and exxon merged tesla is still more valuable and i was like tesla has 20 billion dollars in revenue over the last 12 months and chevron and exxon have combined 300 billion dollars in revenue yeah and so that i mean that really shows you disconnect off of a fundamental perspective of sure how but much- i bet against i mean i don't want this to go on record but it will <laughs> I, I i bet against amazon back in the early days when i thought barnes and noble i thought click and mortar yeah. i was right and wrong I was totally wrong because Amazon did survive and is now amazing. Yeah. yeah. But but what what I my hunch was you're gonna need retail presence. You're gonna need d- distribution. Yeah. Which Barnes and Noble had. Now Amazon went and bought all that distribution and they have it. Yep. So I was sort of right from that perspective. But yeah. Amazon, you know, it's hard for us to look at some of these models because 100%. what everyone was saying back in those days, including myself, was the fundamentals just don't make any sense. Yeah. We just didn't see the future. Yeah. And and so there's going to be a little bit of that. We have to take some risk and see where how models are evolving. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, very valid point. And it's funny that you had that thesis on Amazon and you know, I've always been just fascinated by how they started off digitally on the internet and then slowly started buying up retail and distribution and physical locations and kind of operated backwards. But that's, um, but as a bookstore, an online bookstore is what it first started out into what it is today. Like, I mean, could anybody, (laughs) could anybody really have predicted that it would have grown into what it is? I, I, I would argue, you know, the new CEO that's taken over for Bezos, you know, started Amazon web services 
Yeah. And it's what half the half the value or more of yeah. the company. No one predicted 30. AWS. Yeah. But what Bezos did I thought was interesting. He says, I have a bigger story to tell you than just books. And I was like, what is it? He's like, we don't just sell books. We sell everything. That was a huge idea. Yeah. Huge idea. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard and been told, and I, I, I don't know if we can validate this, but it's a podcast, so everything we say is right. <laughs> but Bezos went <laughs> to River Oaks Elementary School, and I heard that some of the original investors in Amazon were ExxonMobil executives. Really? Because his dad I no worked, idea. I believe, worked there or friends with ExxonMobil guys. So... So that is a great story. That. So big oil that. started Amazon. Amazon. What? We're going to do some digging on this. Go dig that. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I'll have to look that up. No, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I lived in south of Seattle as a kid. And so, I mean, this was like 1998, 1999 and always be driving by the Amazon headquarters. And I just thought it was a big bookstore <laughs> and, you know, have that. No. Well, but, Hollywood wasn't, was built by big oil too. So, I mean, there's a lot of stories about how the fortunes of oil so and we, gas we built did, a lot of things. We did this video on YouTube and it's, it's just a long essay. <laughs> Jake's really salty about it, but we spent all this time making this essay video about how oil built the NFL and how it was originated from the Hunt family. And we like, it was this badass like ESPN, you know, 30 for 30 vibe and spent like 40 or 50 hours on this video and it just tanked. It got like, didn't even do a thousand views on it. I'm like, what the <laughs> So Jake gets, I get really salty about it. About it. We did yeah. so much research. I thought it was the long tail though. It might yeah. come yeah, back. It, may, hey, like it could three, come back. In three years it might pick it come up, back. but we'll probably need a new thumbnail. Yeah. I mean, you just look at any industry, there's always some ties back to oil. So we'll have to look up the, the Bezos. No, same thing with Hollywood. Like, like you said, with Hollywood, uh, we've been trying to get Greg Davis from uh, Davis Petroleum on. His dad was Marvin Davis, who ran the original Davis Petroleum. And he also owned 21st Century Fox back in the day. Yes. That's crazy. So, Let's yeah. Do it. So, Yusuf had lunch with him the other day. So, oh, I guess he's going to have him on oil money and so, I'm going to try to get him on our show as well. Um, That'll be good. Yeah. It'd be, I, he's, he's bound to have just like tons and tons of stories. I mean, if you dive into the story of Marvin Davis, it's just fascinating. So, oil and gas created Amazon. That was oil the, and gas has pretty the... much created the world if we're being honest. <laughs> but yeah, you know, right I, I, like there's this, a lot of Tesla investors are going towards the narrative. Oh, Tesla's not a auto company; it's an energy company. It is, and absolutely I think, is. I think that it's a really interesting take. It's not actually a take that I'd want to want to position Tesla as because energy companies and public equities have just been a shit investment as a whole over the last decade. So I don't know if they necessarily want to put themselves in that bucket. But you definitely have to. You know, you can't look at tech companies on just a fundamental basis of what they're doing today. You have to try to project what they're going to do in the future, and that's hard. And so you're, you know, appreciate you telling that story. A lot of people won't get on here and tell a story about them being wrong on on a bet, but in hindsight. It's like you can never predict that Amazon would be what it is today. I'm sure you asked Jeff Bezos the same thing. You know, you ask him about the early days of Amazon. It's like, hey, did you know that you would host 35% of the internet on AWS? Like, yeah, it's no crazy. Doubt. There's no way. It's no crazy doubt. to think about. <laughs> it's also crazy to think about how much my wife spends on Amazon. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Just with, I mean, to think about how easy it is. It's just like, ah, oh, like, oh, we need something here in the next three minutes. Boom, Amazon Prime. I love it. It's like, addicting. I love Amazon. Then they got the new drones that they got FFA approved to have drones to start drip, uh, dropping things off. They got these new the carrier program where now you can make like, if you want to just you know drive these vans around, you make like three hundred thousand dollars a year building a fleet of these vans. Yeah. Yeah. So like they're their, over their the logistics world. is. I mean, the circular insane. economy is amazing. You know, yeah. from that perspective, everything that you can do with technology, what technology is enabled. Here's the most mind blowing thing about Amazon to me out of all of this is just how the UI is just so awful looking, but it's so built <laughs> just to get you to click that button to buy. Like, but pretty, visually, I think it looks good awful. Point. It is pretty old. It's school. the it's worst terrible. looking side I've ever been I hate on. shopping on Amazon just because yeah. it's terrible to navigate. I don't know if you ever realized this, but you can go, but you can be looking through, let's just say books. Let's just use books as an example. And some of the buttons that you would click actually will change positions as you're going through different books. Yeah. Sometimes the add to list is on the left-hand side. Sometimes the mm. add to list is on the right-hand side. I don't know if the algorithm is just like spitting out, but it's hey, like, we're going to change the UI based on your... But you look at Amazon. So let's take a company like Amazon, obviously one of the best businesses that's ever been built. How does someone build that in energy? Like if you're trying to, you know, if you're... 
say that you had these investors from Exxon that actually were angels in Amazon. Like, does an energy company ever have that? Amazon like, who's the next? Scale? Are you saying like yeah. who's the next Rockefeller? Well, no, just like if you're an energy investor and you're investing in startups, do you ever have the potential to hit a company that scales to the size of Amazon? And I, like, I would venture to say that that answer is, is no. But you know, do you? I have, debated an Exxon Mobil executive at at a like a, I think it was a Thai forum, but um back in 2010 or 2011 and i had no clue what i was talking about so <laughs> i said listen You're i'm like i'm just not gonna let him win <laughs> i have this great idea and then he and there was a it was a round table like 30 people i said i have this great idea what is exxon mobile you guys are a big bank you have a lot of cash and you have a lot of people that do a lot of stuff i was like why not build a digital energy company I have very few employees, I have cash, and what I do is I outsource everything. My my job is to find the resources. Mm -hmm. In this case, in the 2010, I was like, find oil and gas, outsource it to somebody else to go drill, yeah. outsource someone else to actually produce. I'm like, you could cut costs in a huge way. Because a lot of what I think oil and gas companies typically is they overstaff on everything. Yep. And I thought, how much money could you actually save if you just created a virtual digital oil and gas company? So essentially they just went not up across the board. Oh, well, we've, we've talked about yeah. this. No, it's, I've talked to Jeff Skilling about this, about turning the EMP industry has to go to an asset light model and yeah. you need to be able to find the resources. And then essentially, you know, you have services do all the work for you. That way, like GNA kills EMPs yeah. because it's hard to scale up. It's hard to scale down. You heard it here. You heard it here. 2010. That was a 2010. I think I wrote, did write a blog on that one too. Man, it seems like there's always just- You gotta go. I'm gonna, what's the address to your blog? I'm gonna go check it out. See what other- KirkCoburn.com. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so the Not the most exciting, but but definitely I, I put in some time. Put in some time. Like yeah. how much did the ExxonMobil campus cost? It was like a well, couple of yeah, billy, right? Billions. Yeah. But that's what happens when that's you have a, so much cash city. and you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> Just build I'm up. like, hey, millennials, guess what? You you don't want to work in one environment, but we're going to build a cool campus and hold you hostage. <laughs> no, thank you. I wonder if they're all remote now. I wonder if like nobody's even going to the campus. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Just sitting there vacant now. I mean, that's what COVID proved besides yeah. the other things. <laughs> I think going to look like Jurassic World, the latest one when it's all like abandoned and stuff and overgrown yeah. one day. All right, man. We've gone off. On this is a fun conversation. Here. This is fun. We're going to have more like these. <laughs> all right. So ending this thing out, one, people need to check out your blog. So we're going to drop the link in the show notes. Go see what gold you can dig. It's like what ideas did he have 10 years ago that we can Wait. act on today? <laughs> Fire around real quick for any entrepreneurs who are listening. What kind of stuff are you guys looking for? Just really, really quick. We're looking for um, energy transition entrepreneurs primarily. Okay. Uh, if you do have an oil and gas um, idea, I'd love to hear it. Mm -hmm. It's got to move the needle though. Mm -hmm. It's got to be disruptive. You have to be a good team. I mean, one of the things that when I started my first company, I had the same challenges as you need to have an incredible team because no one cares about the first time entrepreneur that has never been able to prove themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm not against them because I was that guy, but I had to go hire people better than me that had credibility. So bring a great team, bring a great idea. Doesn't mean it's always, you know, the one thing you learn is that I, 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 I'm going to knock on a hundred doors. I'm only looking for one. Yes. Yeah. And so we say a lot of no's because it's just not a fit right now, but I'm looking for great entrepreneurs that have great ideas. And, and I, you know, it's hard for me to say now because when I say it, an entrepreneur says, well, that's not me, but they might be holding on to the great idea. So I'm saying, come to me and we'll see if it's, you know, maybe you have something that I haven't figured out. Yeah. And we learned that at Surge. When we tried to narrow what energy tech was, we realized that many entrepreneurs are like, well, that's not me. And I think mm -hmm. that there's some great ideas where an entrepreneur sees something differently than everyone else. It's like, well, I know how you say it, but I see it different than that. That's actually the real story. I think that's why you have to be a little bit, as an as an investor, 
you have to be cautious about saying you know everything. You've got to be open. Yeah. And that's hard. I mean, that's much easier said than done to keep an open mind and not introduce your own bias, I imagine. Very hard. That's that's why I think venture capital doesn't make a lot of money. Yeah. Overall. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to be in, you know, private equity guys don't kill me for this, but it's easier being in private equity when you have, you can look at the, the you know, the EBITDA, the company, and you make a few changes here, cut costs there, grow this. Yeah. But in early stage, you're taking a lot of risk on a team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that team has to be really good at pivoting. I'd rather, you know, again, we say this, I'd rather have an A team yeah. than a C idea because the A team will pivot. Yeah. They'll figure it out. Versus a C team with an A idea because they'll, you know, they're they're going to fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is, I can't believe it took us this long to get a podcast. We'll probably have to do a part two again. Yeah. This is badass. Dude, this is definitely, I'm here once a week now. This is so fun. <laughs> yeah. We got to do the whole new bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to be our third co-host? <laughs> I might have to be. It's so fun. All right, man. Well, appreciate you coming on. We're going to put the link to your blog so people can check that out. And you, the want, por- you want people and to go anywhere else? And the Portnoy photo. Uh, the Portnoy photo. photo. Yeah. We're going to include that on the video so that people can it. see it. Yeah, that's badass. So, all right, man. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, so thank you. Go yeah. check out uh, KurtCoburn.com. Go check out his blog. Uh, it is dope. Definitely the best blog ever. <laughs> uh, go check out our newsletter. Go sign up for that. And we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Go, 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 go.